Well, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew's Gospel? We are uh, picking up in chapter 21 this morning. And we'll, uh, we'll have the, the words up on the screen. We're going to uh, pick up in verse 1 of chapter 21. We're going to read down to verse 17 this morning. So God's word reads, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied, a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the, uh, then the blind men and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant, and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, And he lodged there. And so, Lord, would you just honor the reading of your word this morning? Would you go before us? Lord, as we dig in and see what you have for us this morning, Lord, give us ears to hear. Lord, open our hearts to receive from you. And again, Lord, be glorified in this place. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember from last week, uh, we have left... Uh, Jesus and his disciples. They are in Jericho, that Jesus was healing um, a couple blind men there in Jericho, and and now Jesus has uh, set his sights on the city of Jerusalem, that he is heading to Jerusalem. We are coming to uh, what we call Passion Week, right? We are coming to the end of Jesus's journey and 
And he is heading to Jerusalem, and he's heading to Jerusalem for, for one last time. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, this fairly familiar passage, right? This uh, passage of Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of, of Jerusalem, where he is, um, where he is praised, worshipped, where he is honored for, for who he is, right? Where he allows the worship to take place, where he allows the praise and so as we consider this passage, there are uh, seven things this morning that I want to consider. Seven things about Jesus' triumphal entry. Seven things about a king's entrance that I think we should consider. And the first of which is that his journey is complete. His journey is complete. Look there in verse 1. It says that when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives... And Jesus sent out two disciples that as he drew near to Jerusalem, that his, his journey is coming to a close. And he is ending his three years of public ministry. Right, that they have left Jericho. Jericho was about uh, 14 miles um, to the east According to, to Matthew chapter 20, verse 29, um, it says that when they went out of Jericho, that a great multitude had, had followed them. So he's leaving the city of Jericho, about 14 miles, but Jericho was about 1,000 uh, 1, feet below sea level, right? And if you know anything about Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem, right? That Jerusalem was set on a hill. Jerusalem sits 2,500 feet above sea level. So you can imagine they're traveling 14 miles, but they're also traveling 3,500 feet in elevation to get to Jerusalem. And they're traveling, it says, to Bethpage. And there's not much we know about Bethpage. It is only ever referenced or mentioned in terms of his triumphal entry, in terms of his journey into Jerusalem. We don't know much else about the city. Um, we know that it's a town outside of Bethany. This would put the city about the, the south, uh, about southeast of at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Uh, we know that in Hebrew, Bethpage means um, house of unriped figs. Beth being house and and phage meaning unriped figs. So the the town is is the um, the house of unriped figs. Free information, I don't know what it means, I don't know what it means to you, but you know, if you're curious about the Hebrew, that's what, it, that's what it means, but this is where Jesus is headed, this is where Jesus is going as he is closing his ministry. So as they approach Jerusalem, they, they, they stop at this city, and Jesus' traveling is done, right? That he has, been, he has been traveling around, he has been healing, he has been teaching, he has been ministering. For the last three and a half years. And that's all coming to completion. Right? As he comes to Jerusalem, that public ministry stops. His teachings, his healings, his earthly ministry drawing to a close. In fact, Jesus' triumphal entry is the last time that he appears publicly until his crucifixion. And everything up to this point, everything that Jesus has done so far has been leading up 
to these moments. Moments that, as he says, is to accomplish the will of his Father. Right? That's what Jesus says. Everything he does right, is to accomplish the will of his Father. Instead, in fact, in, in John chapter 5, verse 30, he says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Right? Pretty soon we're going we're gonna to see Jesus there in the garden, right? And he's going to say, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus wants to see his Father's will accomplished. In fact, in John 4, verses 30, uh, verse 34, Jesus says to his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus, my very sustenance is to do the work of my Father, is to do his work to completion. And here we see Jesus' journey coming to completion. And as I was thinking about this, as I'm thinking about Jesus finishing his earthly ministry, finishing the work that he's been doing, right? he's, he's got his eyes set on Jerusalem, he's heading to the cross, right? That's the end game. That's where he's going. That's the purpose of him traveling to Jerusalem, is for the cross. And I was thinking about this, and it reminds me that we are also on a journey, are we not? Right? We are also journeying in this life. We are running a race. Right? We are fighting a fight. And I hope that it is our desire as well to accomplish the work of the Father. Right? To see his will accomplished in our lives just as Jesus is seeking to accomplish the Father's will. You know, five years ago, I had the, the honor and the privilege to officiate uh, my grandfather's funeral. And I was just con- kind of considering that this week. It was a man who finished his race, who fought his fight, who ended and completed his journey. You know, he was a man who was married for 63 years, raised Three children in the Lord, right? His three kids, my mom, right? They know and they love the Lord. And he was, you know, as I was officiating that funeral and and, and just considering his life, he was remembered as being a man of integrity, a man of kindness, gentleness, And humility. And that's how he ended his race. That's how he ended his journey. That's what he's remembered for. You know, and and the simple truth is that we are all on a journey together. We are all running a race. And we want to finish that race well. Right? Jesus has been running this race. He has been journeying up until this point. Seeking to accomplish the Father's will. You know, and just thinking about my grandfather and how he finished his race, how he fought the fight, how he kept the faith, right? That his life right, was lived out for the will of God. And I hope and I pray that my life 
right? However it ends, lives out the will of the Father, right? That's what Jesus is doing, to live out the will of the Father, to accomplish his will, to see him honored and glorified. And I hope that we, when we get to the end of our journey, whatever that looks like, however that happens, whether we're raptured or otherwise, that we can say that we lived out our lives for the will of the Father, right? That when we get to our completion, because here's the thing, right? I mean, if there's one true statistic in the world, right, one out of every one person will die, right? I mean, that's just the simple fact of life, right? The simple fact of life that our journey will end one day. We have our own race to finish, and we want to be living for the will of God. Jesus did, right? He's our example, is he not? I hope that when I get to the end of my journey, that can be said of me. That that can be said of us. Right? That, that we lived our lives, we ran our race, we finished our journey to accomplish the will of God. Right? To see his plans, his purposes, to see his kingdom being furthered. So his journey was complete. But our journey isn't complete, is it? Right? We're, still, we're still going. We're still here. The Lord still has a plan, a purpose, a desire for us. And we want to walk in that. So the second thing that we want to consider this morning in terms of Jesus' triumphal entry is not just that his journey is complete, but there is instructions that are given. Right? He instructs a couple of his disciples here. Look at verses 1 through 3. Right, that then Jesus, in verse 1, that he sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you're going to find a donkey tied and a colt with her. He tells them to loose them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you, you should say this, that the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So Jesus' journey might be complete, but He's still instructing, right? He's instructing these disciples. He gives them a very specific task, right? Jesus sends two of these disciples to go procure a donkey and its colt. Which two disciples? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But two of these men, he instructs to go get this donkey, right? And he says that there's going to be a colt with her. Go get them. Bring them to me. Oh, and if anyone asks you anything about them, just tell them that the Lord has need of them. Jesus needs them. That's it. That's all you got to say. You know, this reminds me of Jesus' omniscience, right? Because when Jesus came to the earth, right, that he had to lay aside certain attributes, right? In his humanness, for example, he couldn't be omnipresent, could he? Right? He couldn't be there in Bethpage and in Jerusalem at the same time. Right? He can't be with his disciples and with the donkey. Right? He had to kind of lay that part of him aside until he, so he instructs these disciples to go get this donkey and its colt. But it reminds me that he is omniscient. Right? He is well aware of the donkey and the colt. He knows that it's there. 
And he instructs them where to go and where to find it. That Jesus is still all-knowing and he's still instructing. You know, and that reminds me that we are not able to fool God, right? We may be able to fool others, but we're not fooling God, right? I mean, we can say, hey, I'm, I was out of town, I'm out of the country, my phone's turned off. I mean, who's going to know, right? How, how are they going to find out? There's no paper trail. It can't get tracked back to me. See, we can fool the people around us, but we can't fool God. I mean, let's face it. We can't hide from God. In fact, if Jesus is paying attention to a donkey and a colt in the next town over, don't you think he's paying attention to us too? Right? That he's well aware of what we have going on in our lives? Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Right? We are going to stand before him one day. We are going to give an account for the things we do, the things we've said, the things we didn't do. Jesus is aware. And I take comfort in that. I take comfort in knowing that, that he's well aware of what I have going on. Right? That he's there to keep me accountable. Right? That I'm going to give an account one day. But he's also well aware of the struggles, the difficulties that I have going on. I mean, let's face it. He's asking these disciples to do something kind of strange, right? I mean, think about it for just a moment. Go to this town over there and just go, you're going to find this donkey and its colt tied there. Go loose them and bring them to me. So if they're tied up, they belong to somebody, right? Somebody put them there. And Jesus is asking them to go take them. (laughs) He tells these disciples to find these two donkeys. They've been prepared for them. And if you're confronted, just say that the Lord has need of them. In fact, it's... I think it's Mark's gospel that tells us that, that they were confronted, right, in Mark eleven five. but some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? Right, so Jesus knows that the donkey and the colt are there, and he informs them that they're probably going to get confronted, which they were. In fact, it's Luke's gospel that tells us that it's the owner of the donkey and the colt that confronts them. Right? Luke 19.33, we're told that it's the owners confronting them. And I don't know as though I could have responded the same way. I mean, just again, think about it, right? These, these are the property, right? These two disciples are taking someone else's property at the instruction of Jesus. You know, I mean, just picture it, right? A couple men come into your driveway, start fiddling with the ignition of your car, 
think I'd have a different response, right? Like, what are you doing? Get your hands off my donkey. I mean, it's a pretty peculiar thing he's asking. But look what happens. Right, they're untying these donkeys, and when they're asked about it, they respond exactly how Jesus instructs them, right? The Lord has need of them. And once the owner realized that it was for the Lord, he freely gives them. I mean, could you respond that way? Right, that, 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 that person's in your driveway trying to break into your cars. Well, the Lord needs it. Have at it. It's yours. But here's the thing, and this is what I love about the omniscience of God. This is what I love about how he's instructing his disciples. He selected two disciples, and it doesn't matter who it was. He instructed two disciples that he knew would follow his instructions, right? He knew that they would be obedient to that call. And not only was was he aware of their obedience, but he also knew that the donkeys were there, and he also knew that the owner would allow them to be taken. And that's what I love about us following the instructions of our Lord. Because he is working in all areas. Right? If he's called you to do something, you can rest assured that on the other end of that, he's working there too. You know, I was just... I was just talking to Pastor Dean this week, and he was, he was telling me this story about a mutual friend of ours who uh, just got called to pastor a church. And he couldn't shake this feeling, right? God's called me to take over this church. But it's just kind of a weird thing, right? Like, this church already has a pastor, you know, and he's had a bad experience in his past, and he's thinking, I, I, I didn't like that. I don't want to go back there. And my wife is certainly not going to want me to go back there. But as they were talking one night, his wife said, hey, the Lord's really pressing on my heart. I think we're supposed to be at this church, and I think you're supposed to be the pastor. Right, so there's the Lord working on his wife, separate from working on him. Right, and they come to this place of mutual agreement because the Lord is involved. And then the other amazing thing is that they went to this pastor of this church, invited them over for dinner, and he just guys, can you take the church? Right? So three parties, the Lord's working on all three of them separately, and they all come together on this singular point. Why? Because God's involved. Because God wants it done. And in the same way, here's Jesus saying, you two, go. Go to this town. Get this donkey and its colt. Bring them to me. The owner's okay with it. And it all happens exactly the way he said, because he knows And that's the amazing thing. The Lord is guiding us. He is instructing us in our lives. And if he's called you to do something, if he's pressed it on your heart, take that step of faith. Don't worry about the other end of it. He's working on that end. He's well aware. He's involved. Just take the step of faith. Be obedient. If he's called you, it's because he wants you to do it. And he'll work out all those other details. It'll be fine. Right? What an example for us. Right? When we realize that our possessions, our things, right? The Lord has a purpose. 
It all belongs to him. Here's this guy that's got these two donkeys, and he's like, oh, the Lord needs them? They're yours. Take them. You know, can we get to that place in our lives where we're like, Lord, it's, it's all yours. I have it because you blessed me anyway. If you want it back, you can have it. Right? How do you want to use me? How do you want to use my life? How do you want to use my stuff? How would you like to use my bank account? Right? It's yours if you want it. Listen, we need to have a loose grip on these things. We need a loose grip on our stuff and a tight grip on Jesus. Right? Because if it's the other way around, our stuff is going to pull us away from Jesus. But if it's the right way around, right, we're going to get pulled closer to Jesus. And he'll work out the other stuff. It'll be fine. Because at the end of the day, we want this stuff to be used for his glory, for his purposes. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those that dwell therein. Right? We all, believe, we all belong to him. It's all his. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Listen, if you're sitting here this morning, if you're watching online, if you're listening to this this morning, and you call Jesus Christ your Lord and your Savior, you are not your own. He paid for you. He paid the ultimate price for you. And he wants all of you. So if you're holding something back this morning, he's calling you, just like these two disciples, he's calling you. He's saying, I have something for you. I have a plan. I have a purpose. Let me deal with the details. I just need you to go. I just need you to do this thing. I just need you to be obedient here. Right? And I can't speak to what that is in your life, right? But I can tell you, if you're listening, God is speaking to you and he is calling you. And he has something for you. We are not our own. It all belongs to him. And if we can come to that simple yet profound point in our lives, man, there's liberation there. There's liberation there when we realize that it's not up to me. Right? It's up to him. He's got it. He's in control. All we got to do is surrender and say, Father, your will accomplished. Your will be done. Well, we have to hurry. The third thing we want to consider this morning is not just that his journey is complete, not just that Jesus is instructing, but also that there is prophecy being fulfilled. Right? This is a big deal, Jesus going into the city of Jerusalem for the last time. Prophecy is being fulfilled in verses 4 through 9. Notice what it says there. All this was done that it might be fulfilled. He is fulfilling prophecy. It was spoken by the prophet saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, the colt. 
the foal of a donkey. Right? So it says there that the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, that they brought the donkey and the colt, they laid their clothes on them, and they set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. They cut down these branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. And the multitude started crying out, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In these these five verses, there are two specific prophecies that are being fulfilled by Jesus. Right? Jesus said, all of this is being done so that it might be fulfilled, so that the prophet's prophecy would be fulfilled. The first of which was in Zechariah chapter 9-9, right, where Zechariah the prophet said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah said this some 400 years Beforehand. Rejoice, your king is coming. The Messiah is here. But this king, your king, your Messiah, he's coming like no other king before him. Right? He's coming lowly. Kings don't enter a city in humility, right? They bring the parade, the procession, they bring everything, right? Because they want you to know who they are. They're in charge. I'm the king. Right? Jesus is coming without that pomp. Without the grand parade, without the processions. He's not coming in the typical kingly entrance. No, he's coming lowly. He's not even coming on a white horse, right? That comes later. No, he's entering the city on a donkey. In humility. Humility. Paul says in Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself, became obedient even to the point of death, the death on a cross. That's the king that we worship. That's the king that we follow. That's the king that is entering into Jerusalem, lowly, sitting on a donkey, Right? Because he knows that he is heading to his death. Because they were looking for something else, right? They were looking for that king with pomp. They were looking for that king to say, Rome, you're done. I'm here. But Jesus had other plans. Right? We just saw... Um, Last week, right? That the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why he's entering Jerusalem. That's why he is going. Peter said, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He's our example. Guys, we're following him. And his example to us was humility. It was coming lowly. And so I think for us, in the same way, we need to lay aside our desire. Our desire to be first. Our desire to be 
recognized, to be esteemed, to be honored. Listen, if the Lord wants to honor you, he can honor you, but that needs to come from him, right? We shouldn't be pushing for that. We shouldn't be driving to, I want to be number one. I want to be the first. I want to be recognized for what I've done, for what I've accomplished. I want to be looked up to. I want people talking about me. That's not the example that Jesus leaves for us. Right? If he's our example, if he's who we're following, Jesus came in humility. Right? Jesus came as the suffering servant. Jesus came and his example was a foot washer. A foot washer. Right? He girded himself. Right? He grabbed that water bucket. He grabbed the rag started washing his disciples' feet. Right? We remember Peter. <laughs> oh, Lord, you're not touching my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. That's the example that he leaves for us. John thirteen fifteen. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Listen, if Jesus has loved us to the point of death, right? Jesus gave himself for us. Shouldn't we love others? Isn't that the example that we've been given? If Jesus came in humility, shouldn't we humble ourselves? If Jesus washed feet, shouldn't we wash feet? Can we say to one another, how can I serve you today? How can I bless you today? How can I minister to you? Instead of saying, this is what I need. This is what I want. He came in humility. Well, there was a second prophecy that was fulfilled. It wasn't just Zechariah 9.9. In verses 8 and 9, there's a second prophecy that gets fulfilled. In verse 8, it says that there was a great multitude. In fact, it says there is a very great multitude. So, remember, that we're coming up to, to Passover week, right? We're coming up to, to, to Jesus' Passion Week, right? He is going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his disciples, right? And I'm sure his disciples were thinking, well, we're, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to celebrate Passover, right? Jesus was going to change that meaning a little bit, right? In, in four days, it's all going to mean something new. But there is this very great multitude. Why? Because it's Passover. Right? Passover is in four days. You see, there are seven major feasts in Judaism. Seven major feasts or seven major festivals that are celebrated in Judaism. The first of which was Passover. It was a one-day feast. The second was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a seven-day feast, right, that came at the heel of Passover, right? So Passover happens, and then the second festival was, was a seven-day uh, feast called the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then after that was the Feast of First Fruits, which took place 40 days afterwards. And then you had the Feast of Pentecost, it's often called the, the, the Feast of Weeks. 
The fifth feast was the Feast of Trumpets, or uh, Rosh Hashanah. The sixth was the Day of Atonement, or Yom, uh, Yom Kippur. And the seventh and final feast that they celebrate was the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. They call it Sukkoth. These are the seven major feasts that, that they celebrate in Judaism. Now, three of them were compulsory, compulsory, which means right, that, that for three of these feasts, every able-bodied male, 20 years and older, were required to attend this feast. Right? And the three that they were required to attend was Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Those three, every able-bodied male Jew, 20 years or older, had to go to. Right? So Jesus and his disciples fit that bill. Right? So they have to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So you can understand why the city is swelling with people. Right? Why Jesus can say that there is a, great, a very great multitude there. In fact, if you, if you read the Jewish historian Josephus, he tells us that there were 260,000 lambs slaughtered that Passover. 260,000 lambs. And each lamb, Josephus tells us, um, or one lamb, I should say, uh, met the needs of 10 people. Right? So most scholars agree that there were at least 2 million people in the city that year. Two million people in the city of Jerusalem there to celebrate Passover. And here comes Jesus riding on a donkey. Right? So you can see why, Jesus, why he could say there was this very great multitude. And notice what they're doing. Right? That, they, that there's Jesus coming, right? And so they start laying their clothes. They grab these palm branches, right? They cut the palm branches off the tree and they're laying them down on the road, right? To make way for the king's entrance. Make way for Jesus the king. Here he comes. Here comes the Messiah. They're doing this in an act of submission, right? This was, this was their way of submitting to the king, Right? There's our king. There's our Messiah. In four days, those same voices are going to yell, crucify him. Because they weren't looking for the suffering servant. They weren't looking for the foot washer. They were looking for the king that was going to usurp Rome and put Israel back on top. But there they are, right? The whole city has swelled to celebrate Passover. They see their, come, they see their king coming, and they begin to quote from Psalm 118, right? Our second prophecy that is being fulfilled. Psalm 118, one of the Hillel Psalms, right? The Hillel Psalms were from uh, Psalm 113 to 118, and these were the, the psalms that were sung during these compulsory feasts, right? They sang these Hillel psalms at Passover, at Pentecost, and at Tabernacles. Hillel means praise, right? These psalms of praise that were sung. 
And I think this is, this is significant because for Jesus, right, everybody else might be confused as to why Jesus is coming into the city, what his purpose is, but Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly where he's going. Right, and there they are, right, singing this Hillel psalm, singing from Psalm 118, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. You see, Psalm 113 and Psalm 114 were sung before dinner, and Psalm 115 through 118 was sung after dinner. You see, Jesus is going into the city, right? He's going to get ready to celebrate Passover with his disciples, right? And he's going to introduce something that we call, right, the, the Last Supper, right? And as, as they celebrate this meal, they're going to leave from there and they're going to sing these songs of praise. And what I find amazing and what I think is significant about this is that Jesus is there singing them. He's going to his death on a cross. And yet he can stand there with his disciples singing songs of praise. And I think that is what's so important and what's so significant for us and why we come here on Sunday mornings and why we worship him. Because no matter what we're going through, no matter where we are in life, we can praise him. Listen, if Jesus can sing songs of praise as he goes to his death on a cross, certainly we can sing songs of praise. Knowing that he is with us. Knowing that he's got this. Jesus is looking forward to the scourging. The suffering, the mocking. And yet he can sit there and sing songs of praise. Because he's doing it for us. So that we can worship. So that we can praise him. Again, this is a pattern for us. Right? When things get hard, when the trial comes, when all of life's circumstances and and situations, when everything seems to fall apart, Right? Our tendency is all too often to shake our fist at God, right? To express our frustration, to get upset with God for allowing this in our lives. Why does it have to be so difficult? God, just give me the blueprint. Show me the step-by-step directions. Instead, we should be praising him. We should be worshiping God, dare I say, thanking him for the circumstance we're in because it's it's what's best for us. It's what he wants for us, that there is something in it for us. There's a plan he has. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 15 through 18, for all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight 
of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Are we working towards the temporal? Or are we working towards the eternal? That goes back to what do we have a tight grip on? Are we holding on to Jesus for all we've got? Or are we trying to hold on to our stuff? Right? No, Tuesday nights are for me. That's my night. I'm not giving that to him. Right? I'm just, I don't know what it is for you, but there's, right, there's something that we're holding back, saying, God, I want to keep this for me. It belongs to him. We like to put things in categories, don't we? Right? This is category good. This is category bad. I don't want to be over here. What this is telling us is there's no good, there's no bad, there's category God. And what you're going through may feel bad, but it's for your sake. God has something for you in it. I understand we might not like it, it might not be comfortable, we may not understand it, but if it's from God, then it's good. If it's from God, it's good. And if it's from God, it is worthy of our praise. Right? If Jesus can leave that upper room, right, as he heads to Gethsemane, as he heads to that garden, right, where he's going to cry out, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Father, if there's any other way, nevertheless, let thy will be done. If he can go through that as he's sweating these great drops of blood, right? as he's heading to that mocking, to that scourging, to that cross, and if he can sing those songs of praise, then I submit to you this morning, and so can we. Right? Whatever you're going through, wherever you are, you can praise him. You can honor him. And say, God, we're in this together. I acknowledge that you're here and that you're guiding, that you're directing. Right? That's why we're here, is it not? And I hope that as we sing sing and as we worship together, that it's not just lip service, it's not just something we do on Sundays, but that it's a true expression of our heart. Right? That we can truly stand there and say, God, magnify yourself. Be magnified in this place. Because the problem is, is that here we have a whole bunch of people saying, Hosanna in the highest. And in four days, they're going to say, crucify him. Right? Like the words are like still out there in the air. And they're, crucify that man. That is not what we were looking for. You were supposed to overthrow Rome. What happened? You see, Psalm 118 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. They rejected him. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. That's what they are singing. That's what they are saying as Jesus is going into the city, as he's riding on this donkey. Save now. Hosanna. This is the day that the Lord has made. You know, we sing that song, right? This is the day. This is the day that the Lord. This is the day that the Lord made. Right? This is what's being fulfilled prophetically. It's this day. You know, we don't have time this morning to get into it, but if you have the chance, read the book, The Coming Prince, by Sir Robert Anderson. Right? He was knighted by the queen for his work. Sir Robert Anderson, he did the math, right? Following the, the Babylonian calendar, right? If you go to Daniel chapter 9, and Daniel has this amazing prophecy that he gives about, you know, there's, there's uh, 62 weeks and there's seven weeks, and a week stands for a seven-year period of time. So in short, you have this 483-year period, right? It comes out to 173,880 days, right? From the going forth to the command to build the temple, right? We know that that command in Nehemiah was given to Nehemiah by King Artaxerxes on March 14th, uh, 445 BC, right? I mean, it's written in history, right? It was a command given by a king. It was written down and we have it. March 14th, 445 BC. If you count out that one hundred and 73,880 days, it brings you out to April 6th, 32 AD. The very day that Jesus rode into the city on a donkey. The very day that the Passover lamb was selected by the priests. So yes, this is the day that he is made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now. That's what they're saying. That's what's being fulfilled. And so rightly so, you can imagine that Jesus' presence is moving, right? His very presence moved the people. That's the next thing that we want to consider is that it was moving. When Jesus entered the city, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? Moved. It's the Greek word, uh, uh, seo. It means to shake or quake. It's where we get our word seismic, right? Earthquake. In fact, later on, we're going to see in, in Matthew 24, that same word is used to say earthquake, right? These, they weren't just moved. These people were shaken to their core at the presence of Jesus. Two million people going, that's our king, right? Recognizing that prophecy is being fulfilled before them, right? Singing the Hillel song. Hosanna, save now. But they were expecting a deliverer. Not a deliverer from the bondage of sin. No, they're expecting a deliverer from Rome. Saving them from Rome's oppression. And that's why in four days their their tune is going to change. Right? They're going to go from save now to crucify. So here's my question for you this morning. Does Jesus move you? Does he shake you? Are you looking for a king to conquer your problems? 
That's what they were looking for. Rome's a problem, and we need someone to conquer them. That's the Messiah they wanted. Or do you want a king that can conquer your heart? Do you want to be delivered from life's problems? Do you want to be delivered from life's struggles? Or do you want deliverance from the bondage of sin? Because that's what Jesus was coming to do. That's why he's entering the city. That was his purpose. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Right, that's who we are. Right? We've, we, we, we've come into the world in iniquity, in sin. Right? We enter this world under the bondage of sin. We're a slave to it. Paul says in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And we need someone to deliver us from that bondage of sin. Praise the Lord, that's what Jesus did, amen? Paul said in Romans 6.14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Well, as you can imagine, this didn't make people very happy. But Jesus wasn't very happy either, was he? Right? Because after, after this big procession, after all of this happens, what's the first thing that Jesus does? Right? He goes to the temple and he sees some things he's not too happy about. And Jesus' anger is aroused. Right, verses 12 and 13, Jesus went into the temple right, and he drove out those money changers. He overturned the tables. And he said to them, It is written that my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he doesn't go into the temple proper. No, he goes into what's called the court of the Gentiles. This was the, the outer area of the temple where Gentiles were supposed to be allowed to come and to worship. And they had taken this area and they had overtaken it and they had made it a place of commerce. So you have to understand what's going on, right? It's Passover. It's, it's required, right? People have to come to the city of Jerusalem to, to worship. They have to come to celebrate Passover. So how do we make some money? Well, they have to travel and they're going to bring their, their offering with them. So no doubt their offering that needs to be without blemish is going to get blemished on the way, right? So they had this whole thing set up, right, so that people would inspect the offering, right? They would, they would check every little piece of it to find the speck, to find the blemish. Oh, you can't offer this to the Lord. It's got a blemish on it. Not to worry. We have some temple-certified temple offerings right here. We will gladly sell them to you at three or four times the going rate, right? They were taking advantage of the people, right? So they've traveled all this way because they want to worship their God and the temple priests say, nah, not with that offering, you're not. You need one of ours. Get ready to pay the price, right? So they cough up the money and they say, oh, no, 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 we can't take that Roman denarius. The temple can only take the temple money. We need the temple shekel. We got plenty of those, but you can believe that exchange rate was in their favor. 
not the people's. This is what's going on. People have come to worship and the leadership at the temple are taking advantage. And Jesus says, no. No, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. You are stealing from the people. That's supposed to be their idea of worship? Is being fleeced? Being taken advantage of? The church is stealing from them? Do you have any idea how often I talk to people and that's the reason they don't come to church? Just, just this last week, I talked to somebody. They grew up in the church. And they told me that they don't go to church anymore because the church leadership took advantage of them financially. That's exactly what's happening. Right? So you can imagine Jesus, right, that righteous anger saying, no, this has to stop. And then his power is seen. So here's the contrast, right? Jesus goes into the temple. He overturns these tables. And in verse 14, it says, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So you have people coming that are blind, that are lame, and Jesus is there saying, I got you. Let me heal you. These other people clearly don't care for you. They just want your money. They just want to take advantage of you. But Jesus is there saying, let me heal you. Let me take care of you. That should be the example of the church, right? When people come to church, it should be, what do you need? How can I minister to you today? How can I serve you? That should be the example. Not what can I get out of you. How can I benefit from you? And that's why we come to Jesus, right? And I hope and I pray that you're not coming here on Sunday mornings for me or for Pastor Dean. I hope you're coming because Jesus is here, because his presence is felt, because his word is taught. Because if you're getting anything from me, if you're getting anything from Pastor Dean, I promise you, it's not enough. It needs to be about him. It needs to be for him. This is what the church is about. It needs to be a place where people can come and get healed. It needs to be a place where people can come and be ministered to. It needs to be a place where Jesus is. And I pray that that's what Lighthouse can be. I pray that that's what Lighthouse is to this community, a place where Jesus is, a place of healing, a place that is safe and comfortable. Because listen, it's, it's not about the building, it's not about the paint on the wall. It's about people. It's about us working together to love one another, to minister to one another, to see God's kingdom proclaimed, to see God glorified. That's why we, I hope, I pray that that's why we're here. Because listen, 
his detractors get indignant, right? In verse uh, 15 through 17, right, when the chief priests and the scribes, they saw these wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, it says they became indignant. Jesus is healing people and they're upset about it. He says, have you not read? You guys should know the Bible. You guys should know what it says. Have you not read that out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants that you have perfected praise? Indignant, filled with rage. That's what that word means. Because they were looking for a military leader. Right? They were looking for a leader to, write, to raise up an insurrection against Rome, to overthrow the government. And this dude is wasting his time on the sick. Right? Like, that's their attitude. That's how they feel. He's wasting his time with these blind and lame people. His focus should be on getting rid of Rome. And I don't know about you, but I am sure glad that Jesus spends his time on the broken and the hurting and the sick and the lame and the blind. Because that was all of us at one point, right? That we are hurting sick people and we need a savior. So listen, if if that is you this morning, if you feel lost, if you feel hurting, If you're sick, if you're confused, if you feel alone or isolated, if you feel like you've been neglected by this world, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He's been looking for you. He's been waiting for you. He's been longing for you. And he wants to heal you. He wants to mend your broken heart. And he wants to deliver you from your bondage of sin. The king has entered. And I pray this morning that we will allow him to enter our hearts. And allow him to take up residence within us. Because notice what what he says in verse 17 as we bring this to a close. It says that Jesus left them. Right, that they got indignant about who he was, what he was doing. They got indignant. They got filled with rage. It says he left them. The word in the Hebrew means he forsook them. Here's the thing. Jesus will not stay where he's not wanted. Jesus isn't going to stay somewhere where he's not wanted. He will, if you don't want him around, he will leave. Jesus will not force his way in. He wants to be invited. He wants to be where he is wanted, where he's desired. In fact, when we get to to the book of Revelation, right, in chapter 3, verse 20, when he is speaking to the church in Laodicea, Jesus is outside the church, knocking to get in. He's outside the church. And I pray that he is not outside of our church. I pray that he is not outside trying to get in here. Saying, how do I minister to those people in there? They won't let me in. 
But listen this morning. He is knocking on the door of your heart. Saying, let me in. I want to be your king. I want to conquer your broken heart. And I want to free you from your bondage of sin. He says, I want to deliver you this morning. He says, I finished my journey so that you can finish yours with me. He finished his journey so that we can journey with him, alongside him, seeking to honor and glorify him so that the Father's will can be accomplished. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you this morning, God, for who you are. God, I thank you so much that you entered that city, Lord, not to conquer Rome, but to conquer our sin. God, there is no greater love than that. God, there is nothing more powerful, Lord, than the work you can do in our hearts. God, when we surrender ourselves to you, Lord, when we lay it all open and bare before you, when we come to you and say, Lord, I am nothing more than a dirty, rotten sinner, and I need you. I need deliverance from this life of sin. Lord, would you enter? God, I pray that you are not on the outside of our church. God, I pray that you are not on the outside of our hearts, Lord, but that you have entered, that you have conquered, and that you have taken up residence, and that we this morning belong to you. And God, I pray that as we go from this place this morning, Lord, as we go and we tackle the day, that at the end of it, we can look back and say, was your will accomplished? Were you honored? Were you glorified? Were you lifted up in my life today? So God, we thank you for this morning. God, would you, Lord, as we close, Lord, as we close in this song, would you inhabit the praises of your people? Would you be with us, Lord? And would you go before us the rest of today? And so we thank you. We praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.